Hello, my name is Kelly Kelly. Welcome to the NICU Now audio support series. I am a NICU parent to Jackson, a micro preemie born at 24 weeks, and Lauren, a late-term preemie born at 34 weeks. I am also the founder and executive director of Hand to Hold, a national nonprofit dedicated to providing education, resources, and peer-to-peer support to families that have experienced premature birth, the loss of a baby, or have a child with a special health care need. Hand to Hold's NICU Now audio support series was developed to help NICU parents navigate their NICU journey. During pregnancy, mothers have intimate, physical bonds with their baby. They are typically a little more excited about the purchase of maternity clothes, finding the softest baby blankets, and picking the best diaper bag. And they usually have sharper images and stronger expectations of the dream of a perfect birth. But fathers have dreams too, and their shattered expectations and inability to keep their wife and child safe during a traumatic birth may be very overwhelming. They may witness their child struggling for life at birth. They may find themselves faced with making critical medical decisions for their child while their wife is still in recovery. They often struggle to support their wives emotionally and find themselves exhausted as they try to balance life in the NICU, work, and often other children at home. Studies now find that NICU fathers are at a higher risk of developing postpartum depression, anxiety disorders, and PTSD. This is not surprising given that they are typically less likely to reach out for support, talk openly about their feelings, and seek medical care. Fathers often feel hopeless in the NICU. They desperately want to help their babies, but they don't know how. Author Tom French wrote the following of his NICU experience in Juniper, the girl who was born too soon. Junebug's early arrival, traumatic as it was, offered me a chance to help my daughter in a way few other men are ever granted. There was no handbook on how to bond with a micro preemie, so I made it up. When someone from the lab came to draw more blood, I leaned in close and told Junebug how brave she was. When a tech arrived to perform another echocardiogram, I sang, If I Only Had a Heart, the Tin Man song from The Wizard of Oz. A baby's long-term social and emotional development is directly impacted by their bond with their mother and their father, so it is crucial that fathers find ways to process their emotions and bond with their babies. Joining me now are three NICU graduate fathers who are here to share their personal insights into being a dad in the NICU. Michael Kelly is father to Jackson, born at 24 weeks in 2000, and Lauren, born at 34 weeks in 2003. He lives in Austin with me, his wife of 20 years, two teenagers, and two dogs that he tolerates. He enjoys playing baseball, cheering on his kids in boxing and volleyball, and watching Michigan football. He is also a card-carrying member of the Rat Pack Fan Club, and once had a mullet while playing in a rock band before cleaning up his act to become a CPA. Scott Whitaker is father to Luke, born at 36 weeks in 2009. Luke was an IUGR baby and developed necrotizing intercolitis on day nine in the NICU. He lives in Austin with his wife Catherine and five other children ages 15 to 2. He enjoys coaching his kids, various sports activities traveling, and is an avid Aggie sports fan. 
He has worked in fundraising and development for 18 years, many of those years working for the Catholic Church. And Michael Beatty, father of Liam, born at 30 weeks in 2009 due to his wife Jennifer's severe preeclampsia. They live in Austin with Liam and their older son Ty, age 13. Michael and the family enjoy scouting, camping, traveling, and attending the kids' school and sport events. When time allows, Michael is an avid ultra-distance runner and obstacle course masochist. Michael Kelly, as the most senior NICU dad here, I'd like to start with you. If you could just share with us, how did you feel that day that I went into preterm labor and you were following the ambulance and you found yourself amidst a world we didn't even know existed and kind of the feelings that you had when you witnessed that birth and you saw your son born so early? Well, I was completely unprepared and I did not know what was about to happen. Uh, I did not see my son being born. I saw you taken away and the next thing I know, uh, I was escorted out of the room and uh, they let me back in the room after Jackson was born. And when I first saw him, I did not think that he was alive. I thought he was dead. And when they told me that he was alive, I just couldn't believe it. And there were about 15 nurses and doctors working feverishly on him and saved his life. And the whole thing was quite a, quite a blur. And tell everyone kind of your emotions that first time you were taken into the NICU to meet him. I was scared. I thought that I would hurt him if I touched him. I didn't know what to think. He was in a very fragile state and he couldn't breathe on his own. He was on a respirator and there were a lot of tubes and wires connected to him. I had no idea what I was in for. I had no idea what I was looking at. I didn't even know what a NICU was. I didn't know that we were standing next to one when you went into labor. Scott, if you don't mind stepping in here, did you have a similar experience when your wife, Catherine, went into preterm labor? Thanks, Kelly. We, um, we had a very different experience. Um, our experience was a, a, a little different. Um, really, through the first part of, of her pregnancy, we didn't uh, really know what to expect, and it wasn't until about 20 weeks that we knew there was going to be some concerns or some challenges for, for Luke. And uh, when we didn't decide to go and, uh, and, and take Luke a little bit early, about four or five weeks early, uh, the experience was, was pretty surreal. It was, it was interesting. We'd, we'd had uh, four other children, and so they were pretty easygoing, pretty textbook pregnancies and deliveries. And so this was uh, definitely new territory for us. Uh, Catherine had had a, a C-section, and we really weren't expecting that at all. Uh, and see, things seem to be going pretty well those first nine days, but uh, then really what, what got us is on day nine when we found out that he had uh, necrotizing intercolitis, and, and that's really when the uh, uh, kind of the, the vortex started spinning and, and things really got uh, really kind of crazy at that time. And I, and I think what, what Mike had said, I remember vividly uh, leaving the hospital. 
it was uh, it was a, a quite interesting experience for us to uh, follow the ambulance over to the children's hospital uh, after we found out the uh, the initial diagnosis of um, necrotizing enterocolitis, and that was a very quiet, uh, very very weird experience driving over because, as kind of as Mike said, you you didn't really know what you were getting yourself into. You were you were really following something that you just didn't know um, what was going to happen when he arrived at the hospital. And, and so that, that experience of kind of following behind the ambulance just uh, was, was, was very weird and, and didn't really know what to expect on the other side. And I would have to imagine that that's pretty hard for the stereotypical male to not have control over the situation to not be able to protect their wife and protect their baby. Michael, I know um, Jennifer, your wife, had preeclampsia, which led to Liam's early birth. So did y'all have some forewarning that uh, the baby would be delivered early? Were you prepared? Did you know what you were getting into in your first NICU adventure? Did we have any forewarning about, you know, having a NICU child? No, we didn't. I think we, and I could be off on this, we had a matter of days when we kind of knew initially that Jennifer's health was not improving. You know, she went in for her routine visits and then noticed that, you know, her she had elevated blood pressure, which is always a sign that, you know, there's something to be aware of and to watch. We lived about 45 miles away from where he was going to be delivered since we were kind of in a specialty operation that uh, we knew we had to go to a different town uh, to have that procedure done. So we, uh, Jennifer was transported to the different town, and at that point, we had, I'd followed behind the ambulance, and at that point, they had a C-section scheduled for Jennifer. So at that point, um, you know, as I'm traveling behind the ambulance, uh, there was no, there was nothing that I could have planned for that. And at that point, um, all I did was just kind of get into um, automated mode to in which to be there for my, my wife and to kind of uh, be prepared to whatever comes next. If you could describe for us a little bit about your emotions as your wife uh, went into uh, labor or was induced and your first initial emotions when you saw your child in the NICU. Sure, Kelly. We... Uh, probably had a, a little different uh, entry into the NICU than than other uh, NICU parents may have experienced. Uh, we had uh, known quite a, a while earlier that uh, Luke was going to uh, have some challenges at, at birth. He he had uh, IUGR and he wasn't uh, wasn't growing in Catherine's womb, and so we'd found that out at about 20 weeks, and we knew that there w- might be some challenges. And of course, we went. Uh, uh, for the last visit in, in about 35 and a half, 36 weeks, and the doctors had said, looks like he's not growing, let's go ahead and, and, and take him. So uh, Luke was our fifth child, and, and the four previous children were textbook pregnancies and, and textbook deliveries, and so we didn't really know what to expect, and, and Catherine ended up having a C-section to deliver Luke, and and uh, we knew he was going to have a, maybe a short NICU stay, and we always kind of thought there'd be this four or five day stay, and we'd kind of blow out of the joint and and be on our way home because we knew what we were doing with number five. Well, that uh, that changed in in an instant uh, when he had uh, contracted uh, necrotizing enterocolitis, and 
and that was kind of the first uh, trip over to the uh, local children's hospital. And a thing that I think that probably um, sets in my mind quite often is the decision to uh, transport him over to the children's hospital meant that it was most likely surgery. You know, this wasn't something that uh, you just go over and, and have a little stay and enjoy yourself and be out in a few more days. Uh, the drive over in the in the car, kind of behind the wheel, following that ambulance was just this incredibly weird, surreal experience. It was very quiet. Uh, we prayed a lot. Uh, the emotions were pretty high, and we just we really didn't know what to expect. We quite frankly just didn't know what we were going to experience on the other side. So. Uh, as a father, that was really, really difficult to do, and to just to kind of to sit back and, and kind of watch these things unfold. Because, you know, us dads, we like to we like to be in control, and we like to to lead things in our families. And, and so, I think this was something that was a, a new and unique experience for me. I talk frequently about my struggles to bond with my baby. He was so tiny and small and sick that I just was scared to love him because I knew how close we were to losing him. But for Mike, I feel like that was different for you. I feel like you stepped right up and right into dad mode where previously, uh, you know, it really was me picking out all of the things for the nursery and what we were going to register for. And we were only at 24 weeks. And so I just saw you evolve into a father so quickly. And so I just wondered if you would share with everyone kind of the feelings that you had for Jackson when you first saw him. Sure. Because everything happened very quickly and unexpectedly, when you were brought to the hospital, the nurse that examined you said that there was nothing that could be done. And I didn't accept that answer, and I decided to summon help. So I ran down the hall screaming for a doctor, and they came, and everything happened so quickly that by the time he was born, well, to back up, you came into the house at 6 o'clock, and I was eating dinner. And by 7.33, he was born. So a lot happened in those 90 minutes. Because everything was going so quickly, I was just in the mode. I was in the mode of fixing things, trying to control things. And as soon as I saw Jackson in the NICU, I decided that I needed to continue with that. And I bonded with him immediately because I was pulling for him and for you just to survive. Michael, did you have a similar experience when Liam was born so early? I know you have an older son, so this was much different, uh, a traumatic birth and being whisked off into the NICU. What did this feel like as a dad for your relationship with him and your emotions and your bond to him? Was it the same as with your older son, Ty? My bond with my youngest son, Liam, um, I wouldn't say began quite the same way as my eldest son. Um, it, uh, it was more of a development over time because I, I suppose um, early on in the beginning when uh, Liam was born, it was really unknown kind of how much emotional investment, you know, I was uh, prepared for. And um, I don't know whether it was just, you know, masculinity or just a defensive mechanism, you know, I, I uh, didn't really bond so quickly. 
and whether that was because of whatever could be next or or not um, but as I saw my son grow and develop in that little uh, in that little machine that little little box that uh, he lived in for several weeks um, the bond just grew exponentially and at that point I mean I think we had just grown together and had such a, a great bond. Scott you had um, several older children. This is your first experience in the NICU and really an emergency trip to a children's hospital for surgery. And I'm just wondering, you know, you're having to make very critical medical decisions for this, for this child and with no previous necessarily experience, medical experience. So tell me a little bit about your emotions as you were trying to make these medical decisions for your child? Well, I think a lot like uh, Michael had said earlier, uh, for, for me, I had two older boys, and so I had uh, the, the benefit of, of really uh, bonding with them. And I think for a lot of us as fathers, we, we, we have our, our son, and Mike, for you, you know, and Jackson was your, was your first, and he was your first boy. There's probably moments where we're thinking he's going to come out and have the baseball bat and be like Mickey Mantle uh, before long. And so that bonding experience was was pretty good for me and the first couple of boys. But uh, this was definitely different. This was something that uh, you just you don't expect. You really uh, you don't have any answers for it. Um, but I think for, for one of the things that that we experienced a lot for, for us was our our faith was very important to us. And we had that uh, in our life. Uh, and secondly, we had we had a great uh, support system, and I think that was very helpful to us. And and that will be something that will be very important, I think, to find a good support system for you uh, to, as you go through this. And so for me as a dad, I think I just really, uh, I really kind of stepped up uh, to the plate and really tried to focus on supporting my wife, um, finding as many answers as I could. Uh, she definitely was uh, herself physically wasn't able to do a lot of things uh, because of the C-section. And so, I don't know, I just kind of kind of stepped in and, and, and started running with a lot of things and, and really tried to be there and be as supportive as possible. Um, and just, you know, Kelly, one more thing, to, to be completely raw, I mean, there, there were moments where um, I'm looking at my son uh, laying in the NICU bed with an ostomy bag attached to him, uh, staring down a life that uh, we didn't know what was going to be like for him, what that quality of life was. And, and uh, I think there, there are moments where, where, where death comes into play here and those thoughts come into your mind. And, uh, and so I think important thing for me to do and for my wife was just to try to hold out for as much hope and positivity as possible. And, uh, and that's kind of how we, we dealt with that in those first, those first few critical days in the NICU. I think you bring up a very interesting point, and that's about grief. I mean, we're grieving the birth that we thought we were going to have, and we're kind of grieving the outcome for our child that we thought. You know, we've had dreams of them being, I don't know, astronauts and ballerinas and uh, baseball players, all of those things. And, you know, when they're born with so many medical complications and challenges, 
um, we have to kind of grieve, allow ourselves to grieve that loss because it is a loss. But I also think it's so important that we hold out that hope. And that's why it's so important to tell these stories of these NICU graduates, of what they've gone on to accomplish. And we're going to uh, share some of those things in just a minute. But Scott, if you could talk a little bit about, you you said your support system, and you certainly had to have a big support system because you had a large family. But how did you participate in Luke's care? What were you able to do in the NICU? As far as uh, care for, for Luke in the NICU, um, you know, I was uh, tried to be as physically present as much as possible. Uh, unlike, it uh, seems like Michael, you were quite a ways from from the hospital. Uh, my office was literally five minutes from the hospital, and uh, that was a great support system for me of just having a, a great employer to, to have those conversations with and, and to figure out how I can be as supportive to my family and, and kind of monitor and, and, stay, and stay focused on, on the things that I needed to do as a father. And so uh, some things specifically that, that I did, certainly stayed active with, uh, with the feedings when we could, uh, always tried to change some diapers uh, every now and then, um, although I do like to have Catherine change more diapers than, uh, than me. But, uh, you know, try to change a few diapers uh, when we could, uh, hold him, uh, just sit there with him, uh, grab his hand as much as I could. Um, never was in an osselet, so that was kind of, kind of an interesting thing for us, certainly in an open-air uh, crib, but he still had all the tubes and all the different things. Uh, but just trying to be physically present, trying to be there as much as possible, uh, trying to you know talk to the nurses, talk to the doctors, just really try to stay as engaged and 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 focused on on his care as, as we possibly could. And I think we we're really blessed with the great children's hospital that that allowed us to be very active in in his care, and that was that was a good thing for us. It really is. It's so important for the bonding process that uh, the parents have a lot of access to their child and opportunities to bathe and hold and feed and kangaroo care. All of those things are so important. Michael, I wanted to ask you, how did you balance work and having a child at home? And uh, you had quite a commute to get back and forth to the NICU. Well, I think it was a matter of planning necessity. Uh, It was just you kind of went into a mode in which you just do. And that's kind of what I went through. We had many events going on. My uh, oldest son was starting kindergarten. We had just sold our house a week before, so I was in the process of moving our home as well as starting school and then uh, trying to uh, be with my wife and son um, several miles away. So in order to do that, as uh, Scott had mentioned, just having that support group, and um, having you know weekly or even daily uh, discussions with the that are supporting you to kind of make sure that uh, one that uh, my wife has what she needs. Uh, secondly, is to be sure that um, my oldest son is uh, able to have a somewhat normal and routine kind of kindergarten year. So it was uh, you know my wife often recognizes these efforts as like you know something that was uh, above and beyond, but honestly, I just, it was just in the moment, and I did what I needed to, and it was a humbling experience that I'm not sure how we made it through. I know from my work with the NICU community over the past 10 years, we have a higher risk for separation and divorce after going through 
these traumatic birth experiences. So, so important early on for us to support each other. And I think, you know, that's the physical support that you're talking about. I know some of the simple things that Mike did for me, just helping me walk back and forth to the NICU, delivering the milk to the NICU, bringing me water and keeping me hydrated. But it was just so important for us to find time for each other and to talk with each other and to hold hands and to pray together, all of those things keep our marriage strong uh, during what really turned into a marathon, uh, more than a four-month stay, and then all the things that follow the NICU, and we're going to talk some more about that. But I wanted to talk to Mike just a minute about anxiety and depression because we have experienced, both of us, some challenges with anxiety and depression since going through the NICU stay. So I just wanted you to share a little bit about your experience and just talk to the dads openly about kind of some of the warning signs and things that they might be uh, needing to look for. Well, let's be real clear. While we're sitting here talking about it 16 years later, we've had a lot of time to reflect and think about our answers. But in the moment that it was happening, there was no time to think. Everything was a pure reaction. It was day by day. In the beginning, it was hour by hour. And what my day consisted of was waking up at 6 o'clock in the morning. I had my alarm set to the earliest that I could possibly call the overnight nurse. And I would call her every morning like clockwork, ask for the update. How many A's and B's did Jackson have? How has he gotten better or worse? And I would get ready for work. On my way into work, I would stop at the NICU at lunch. I would eat in my car on the way over to the NICU. I would see him for 20 minutes and drive back. After work, I would stop in and see him again, and I would repeat this cycle every day. The stress of it, I didn't realize until over 100 days after Jackson was born. It was the day we got home, and I was in the shower the the morning after we brought him home, and I just started bawling like a baby. I had no idea where it came from, and I realized then um, what we had been through, how close we had gotten, and it it was a very traumatic experience. And looking back, the, all the signs were there. I tried to control everything. I would try to breathe for him when he wasn't breathing. I would literally stand over his crib and tell him, breathe. And I would watch the monitors, and I would will those numbers up or down wherever they needed to be. And I would drive our nurses crazy with all of my questions. And it was, it was very stressful. And for someone who's predisposed to anxiety, it was hell. It was absolute torture. It was absolutely the hardest thing I've ever been through and hope to ever have to go through. Michael, what about for you? I'm certain there, there must have been a point of exhaustion and maybe some feelings of anxiety or depression. Can you address that at all? Sure, I can try to. I had the same kind of feelings that Michael was going through, um, not quite to the same extent. I don't know if I was just kind of wired a little differently on how I approach things, but um, definitely whenever stressful situations would come, for example, like his vitals would not be quite a 
quite where they should be or they were down, you know, from the day before, then it's always disheartening and it's kind of an emotional hole. As the days and the weeks began to progress, uh, we did see the progression in his, uh, in his health. And with that, it kind of it lifted my spirits. And I know it definitely it lifted my wife's uh, because she was obviously the, kind of the emotional foundation that she was supporting uh, myself as well as uh, my children. During that time, I was in an action mode, as, uh, as we both have described. So it was not until probably, you know, around the same time that Mike had, you know, sometime later that it did kind of hit me that there was this kind of weight that was still on my, on my chest or on my shoulders. What I had to do was to kind of find that release uh, rather than kind of let it uh, chew on me or, or work on me. So, uh, you know, I found outlets through physical activity uh, just as a, as a means to do that. Uh, ironically, around the same time, my wife and I began to grow in our faith and uh, religion. So we also began to invest in that. So we kind of found these external uh, activities to kind of bring us together in order to help, you know, one, to cope with these uh, conditions that we were in, but as well as kind of to strengthen our family. Because prior to that time, we just didn't have that foundation. And I think that uh, just having that experience, and I don't know whether it was coincidence or fate, just kind of happened all at once that it really kind of blossomed our family into what we are today. That's a really good point, Michael. Um, I was raised a Christian and had gotten away from going to church uh, for several years before Jackson was born. And there was a chapel inside of the church, a little tiny chapel that I would stop in every morning and I would kneel down and I would pray on my way in and I would pray on my way out, and it was very helpful. Um, I, and when I first went in there, I've heard of people saying they were brought to their knees, but I literally was brought to my knees, um, and I don't know how I would have gotten through the difficult NICU stay without having that and without having the church and the people in the church there were people all over the world praying for our son, family, friends. Uh, it was quite amazing, and it, it really did help get through those very difficult days. Thank you both for sharing that. I do think it's so important to, no matter what your religion and what your faith base, but I do know that that is a comfort to many families. Scott, can you talk to us a little bit about the support that your family sought? Did you have some challenges within the marriage and communicating? I know prolonged NICU stay can t- take quite a toll on us as individuals, but especially our marriages. Yeah, I think uh, one thing you have to uh, keep in mind of, of, of knowing me and knowing, knowing Catherine, we're, we're pretty type A outgoing people. And we read the statistics, we, we saw the research that those parents with special needs children, those who have high-risk pregnancies, those with the NICU experience will, will at some point have PTSD, uh, will have anxiety, will have depression, uh, and ultimately many, many marriages fail because of, uh, of those experiences. And so for us, uh, it was about beating the statistics, and we 
we really sought out very early on uh, a good counselor. Uh, we reached out to a couple of folks that we knew and uh, and said, hey, we, we really think this is going to be important for us, and and uh, we we don't want to be behind on this. We want to be ahead. We want to uh, we want to start early. And so, absolutely, for us, we we sought counseling. And really, one of those things that was so very very important to us. And I think there's this this stigma with can- with going to counseling. There's this issue of uh, I'm weak. And I think as a dad, it's probably more than anything else, is that as a father, as a dad, that that means that you're weak. That means that you don't have something inside you to deal with these real problems and these real issues. So for us, uh, it was it was counseling. It was very important to our marriage. It was very important to our faith. It's important to our other children. And so for us, that was something that we took uh, advantage of very early on, and we, we sought out support, and uh, we received good, good counseling, and I think it's it, it helped us tremendously in the, in the last seven years. I so appreciate you uh, stating that because it's so important for me to demystify getting counseling. I think that's so important. One of the most important things I've done for myself and um, what Mike and I have done for our marriage. I agree. I actually had uh, counseling start about two years ago, about 14 years after our NICU stay, I did not realize that PTSD would affect a NICU dad, but it did. And the experience I had the day after Jackson was born repeated itself 14 years later where I was in the shower and just broke down again, and it all came flooding back. And it's not because I was suppressing anything. It's just that we had gotten out of the NICU. Life was moving very quickly. 14 years had passed, and it was time for me to have surgery. And it triggered being back in the hospital. It triggered all of the fears I had with my son. And one of the worst things I went through was after our NICU stay, Jackson had to go back to the hospital six months later for another surgery. And I thought we were out of the woods, and that was probably the most difficult thing I had done. So after realizing that PTSD was a real thing, I needed counseling, and I went through it, and it has helped quite a bit. What would you do differently? Is there anything, Scott, when you look back at your NICU journey, what what would you change? What would you do differently? Well, there were certainly many, many moments during the the NICU journey, uh, so many, so many good ones, so many bad ones, uh, and and so many ordinary days too. Uh, I, I think one of the things that uh, kind of sticks out to me most in my in my journey, and, and certainly dads who are are listening to this may have that that very experience right now, is uh, one day you would get this great movement that you're you're moving toward that that day out, and then. Uh, Mike, as you'd said, you, you do that 3 a.m. call in. How's he doing? What's going on? How are the feeds you know, today? And the nurse tells you that, well, it wasn't so good today. And so you take a couple of steps back. And so this, this NICU journey, I think what I found and what I experienced was literally living every day, being present and being in the moment for what Luke was experiencing that day. 
don't think about what it may be five or six days from now when you may get out. Don't think about what may what may happen, what may uh, may come next. But l- really, what I would probably do differently is try to live more in the moment, in the day to day, in the ordinary, in the times that you just spend standing beside his bed, um, wheeling those numbers to go up, uh, pushing the silence button on on the uh, alarms one more time. Uh, because his stats fell below a certain time, uh, a certain range. Uh, but I think that's something that I would probably look back on is really, really trying to focus in and, and stay within the moment and within, within the day and, and, and stay you know, really present at that moment with Luke. I'd like to add to that real quick. One of our best nurses at the NICU kept telling me, stop watching the monitors, watch your baby. And I couldn't do it. I physically could not do it. I could not stop watching the monitors. And the nurse had the experience that I didn't have of being around hundreds of babies for years. And I only had the experience of having one child uh, this one time. And if I had to do it again, I would try to watch, watch my child instead of the monitors. And one quick story about how to uh, drive that home, Jackson's monitors were going uh, off quite a bit, and uh, it turns out that one of the leads had come off of him, and I was panicking, thinking that he was dying, and the nurse calmly reached over and put the lead back on him and brought him back to life. So um, had I been watching the child, I would have known that. I don't know about for the two of you, but I cannot go into a fast food restaurant because of the sound that those uh, those uh, machines make in the back of the in the kitchen, they make the same noises that you hear in a NICU. So um, not to get back to the P- PTSD, but you know when you put in that circumstance again, when you hear those things, when you when you're in that right moment, those those feelings just come right back, and it's not something you can prepare for. It's just something you have to be aware of, and like what your nurse uh, had advised, uh, be in the moment. And, uh, you know, just, I'm, I'm the same way. You know, I, there's obviously could have been more opportunity for me to be in the moment, to be there for my child. But I'm also going to say that one of the things that I think if I had to redo again would be to be there for my spouse. Well, I so appreciate that you brought up supporting your spouse especially acknowledging the work and um, emotional toll the pumping can take. Um, We know that breast milk is liquid gold. It's considered medication for our NICU babies. And a lot of NICU moms really struggle to produce milk for our babies just physically because of the challenges we've been through. So um, when the dads are, are a part of that and helping us and encouraging us, giving us just words of encouragement and a glass of water and reminding us that we need to eat and helping us uh, stay healthy. And uh, it's just, it means so much uh, to have that extra support. To this day, I don't like the smell of palm olive because <laughs> I had to wash her p- pump parts about a hundred times. Good point. Scott, anything you want to add there? 
Michael, I think your your comments about being there for your spouse are are, are really uh, incredible. Uh, I, I know for me, uh, I dealt a lot with that, um, primarily because we had four other children at home, and so I spent a lot of time trying to uh, maintain the home a, a little bit. Uh, certainly not as good as as uh, as Catherine could. Uh, things got a little dirtier. Uh, a few more dishes stayed in the sink, but. Uh, I, I think that's something that uh, is very important that you continue to uh, support your, your your spouse. For us, Luke uh, couldn't uh, couldn't feed a lot uh, because of the neck, and so there were so many so many times where um, he literally was uh, was living off the IV and just waiting for that moment that we could start feeds again. And uh, I, I know that I was almost like a transport to some degree, uh, taking uh, breast milk back and forth to home and getting it out of the out of the hospital freezer and, and getting it home and kind of storing it up, knowing that uh, that was that liquid gold that you talked about. If you're a dad listening to this in the NICU, stop and think, what can I do? Try, try to give it a thought because, quite honestly, I didn't give it any thought. I, I did what I was told, and... Everything was happening so quickly that I was just trying to survive and keep my son alive. And I honestly did not think, what does my wife need right now? There was just so much going on. So if you have the ability to stop and have that thought, I think it'll be a good thing for everyone. I think that's great advice. Scott, What if you have some words of wisdom to give that dad that's... Uh, sitting at the bedside of his baby right now or driving home from the NICU late at night. What, what are your words of wisdom for that dad? Some words of wisdom for that dad that has that, uh, either that, that current or very recent NICU experience. I, I think I would go back to a, a couple of things that I said earlier. Number one, I think I would, I would live in the moment and live in the present and try to be uh, physically present as much as possible um, Try to you know, bond with your child, and I think maybe even redefining bonding a little bit, uh, that maybe it's uh, touching his hand, maybe it's just being physically present there, but living in the moment, being in the moment, being present, uh, I think is something that is, is just vitally important. Um, secondly, I would, I would say that one thing that I think that I experienced just because of my own uh, opportunities with, with hand to hold was just finding another dad finding another man who has had a very similar experience, maybe uh, some time in the NICU or, or a traumatic birth, but trying to find another man that you can spend time with, and whether that's time in prayer, just time in just thoughtful dialogue, just talking about what experiences that you had. It doesn't have to be much. Uh, it really doesn't. It can be a few minutes here or there, but I think we as men tend to to not uh, experience that or seek out those experiences. And so I think that's something that, uh, if you're listening today, I would encourage you, uh, find another man, find another dad, find another male figure that can be kind of that sounding board, that, that opportunity for dialogue with you. Uh, do not try to attempt this alone. This is not something that you should do by yourself. I would say look around, guys. Uh, there was uh, a friend that, that I made in the NICU and just happened to be the, the guy in, in the NICU, I mean the cube next to us, 
and he and I would talk to each other. We'd have different experiences, but we were able to share one common bond, and that was the struggle of going through the NICU. I agree, and I also think, you know, it's really important to connect with someone who's been out of the NICU for a while, like you guys, because you have this sage experience. Sometimes when you're in the moment, um, that's, you know, it's good that you can bond over the fact that you're having a similar situation, but uh, to be able to offer some words of wisdom and sage advice from a mentor who's been there is, is vital. Mike, do you have some words of wisdom, some, some things you would have done differently? I, absolutely. Being present with the moment. And uh, although the other Mike's not going to like to hear this, but uh, to don't fight it. You know, this, this process is going to go on. And um, as much as we want to control it, um, it's going to happen. So the, the best thing that I can offer is to just kind of go with the moment, be with your child, be with your spouse, be with your, your significant other, and experience this together. Support each other and know that it's not going to be perfect. My goodness, uh, we know it's not a perfect, you know, this is not a normal Rockwell kind of uh, moment. Um, so just allow yourself to just be there to touch your child, do the kangaroo care, um, which is a really cool experience if you got to do it. It's pretty cool. Um, and also, um, as you mentioned, that support group, uh, when, I, when I was going through this experience, they didn't have that support group. You know, If you were lucky, you might buddy up next to the person and isolate next to you, but more than likely, you, know, you were there alone or you're there with your spouse. So um, the, the opportunities that Hand to Hold has been offering to families is a, is a really important experience, and I've got to meet some really great fathers um, and uh, significant others through this process. And I think that the more that we kind of share with each other and to not be kind of all macho, like we're going to hold this in because it's going to come out eventually. So what we need to do is just kind of be there for each other. Thank you. That is fantastic advice. Where were you 16 years ago? (laughs) We need to be honest without scaring anyone, but uh, the NICU doesn't end at the hospital doors. This journey is really just beginning in a lot of ways. I think all of us around this table have um, dealt with ongoing complications, both health complications as well as financial challenges uh, due to our NICU stays and the ongoing care that's needed, and then some developmental delays and challenges that we've had with our children getting ready for school. So um, that may could probably be its own episode, but I just wanted to acknowledge for a minute that it doesn't stop once you get home. Sometimes the journey is just beginning because now you're on your own. So, Scott, can you talk to us a little bit about bringing Luke home? I know um, there were some surgeries after he left the NICU. I remember him wearing that cute little helmet with the Aggie uh, decor on there. And uh, I know he's had lots of therapies. So if you could tell us what, what has it been like after the NICU, and then give us an update on where he is now and all he's accomplished. Yeah, that, um, you know, you think you leave the NICU after, in our stay, 44 days, and you're thinking, this is great. We finally are going to leave this joint. We're all good. 
and and then you get home and in Luke's case, oh, let's let's throw in six more surgeries in the first year. Uh, so the, uh, the the NICU experience continues to live on uh, well beyond uh, leaving the, the hospital. Um, Luke's doing great today. He's seven. He's in uh, first grade. He is uh, doing very well. Uh, we didn't really know what to expect. Uh, it, honestly, we really didn't know. Uh, he has, uh, you know, a few uh, physical challenges, uh, but the kid's got an outstanding big heart, and he is—he's uh, a fighter. And I—I I think Kelly, you and I have talked about this. I think uh, what what Jackson experienced and the kind of way he is now, and I, I think these kids—they're fighters, and and they learn from day one how to how to fight and how to how to be different, how to change their life, and knowing that if they're going to get something in this world, they're going to have to, to work really hard for it. And, and so Luke seems to be doing uh, you know, pretty well today. Um, I, I, I know one thing that we've experienced that a lot of folks will ask us, you know, we haven't seen him in a while, or, hey, how's Luke doing? What's going on? And I think one of the, 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 the things that we started kind of falling back into was saying he's fine because do you really want to know how he's doing? Because uh, let's set aside about an hour and a half, and we'll go over all the details and everything that we've done over the last five, six, or, or seven years. Uh, so I think it's something that's important for, for dads that are listening right now is to to know that you know the NICU experience does continue to go on uh, in various degrees and in various levels depending on, on your child. Um, but just know that there there is always hope and there's always light and uh, that that your your children are fighters and, and they will find a way to to fight through uh, all the challenges that they're going to experience in life and and so I think I would uh, I would encourage everyone to continue to seek help uh, I think as Michael had pointed out go find a great source of information and I think for us a great source of information is hand to hold. Uh, on the on the website and listening to these podcasts and and finding uh, you know a mentor and experiencing others that have gone through a NICU experience are, are very very important and 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 don't get too caught up in looking back. Mike, do you want to tell the dads a little bit about Jackson after the NICU and kind of where he is today? Sure, Jackson is one of the most amazing people that I know. And he amazed me from very early on. Even in the NICU, he was doing push-ups in, the, in his bed and pulling his tubes out of his face. And the nurse even looked at me one time and said, well, I've never seen that. So um, Jackson has overcome, I guess is a good word, with a lot of help. He's had a tremendous amount of support from his mother and me and his friends and family, uh, therapists, teachers, you name it. And he's risen to the occasion every step of the way. And now I, I feel a little guilty at times to call him a NICU graduate because his outcome has far exceeded anyone's expectations. And to hold him up as a an example of what has come out of the NICU is just not representative of the norm. So Jackson's doing very well. He's a very bright, um, energetic, creative, happy, 
uh, perfect little boy that I'm more proud of than I could have ever imagined. Well, I think I'll, I'll praise you here in front of everyone. I, I think a lot of that is due to your dedication, you coaching all of those baseball games and being there for his, his first hit after I don't know how many games it took for him to hit that ball and took a long time to learn to ride the bike. And uh, we've, we've just had so many struggles and challenges, but you've stood by him every step of the way. And we know that kids whose fathers are involved do better. And so, um, Michael, I'll ask you, what challenges did uh, you experience with Liam after the NICU? And uh, talk to us a little bit about where he is today. So after we left the NICU, that was, that, that day we left, I was beside myself because, you know, I had this, uh, this, this, this little child was about five pounds in a car seat that he could barely even fit into. So I didn't even, I didn't even know what to do with myself. As far as care goes for uh, when we got home, I think we were fortunate um, in that we didn't have any relative complications other than he was just a small little guy. You know, he was started out at, uh, what was it, less than three pounds. And then when he left the hospital, he was five pounds. So he was just, he was small and he just took a little time to grow. And, you know, now he's seven and he's still on the smaller scale. And that's just going to be, for some families, that's going to be kind of the fact of life. And, you know, to compare that to your other children, they are such fighters. You know, we, I watched my son, as Mike had mentioned, you know, pulling those, those IVs out. I was like, oh, my goodness, this, this child, he's going he's gonna to give me a run for my money. And he has, but to know that his that his health and that his well-being, his emotional state is supported, then you know that's that's all we can ask for. And uh, and with that, he has grown. He's just a young man who I just I'm so excited to kind of see what's next for him. But you know, I still have to kind of remind myself, as we all do, that uh, this experience that we went through. And that it's still going to be part of our lives and uh, just part of this uh, great story that we have. Well, I know you're a very active father. Y'all enjoy camping and uh, scouting and uh, sports. And so I just think, um, you know, his outcome is a great deal in part to um, all that you and Jennifer have poured into this child. And I will say, you know, our children are predisposed um, to RSV. So, so important when we bring them home to make sure that we're protecting them. They often have sensory integration disorder. They have ADD and ADHD. Um, they have some visual problems. So, so important as moms and dads that we are very invested in their outcome, that we are taking them to all of their follow-up appointments, that we are asking the right questions of our pediatricians, that we're very involved once they go to school, and that we're making sure that they get all the therapy that our states uh, provide. But then if they need additional therapy, I highly recommend and encourage that families continue that therapy so that you have the same outcomes that all of our young men have had. And I did want to say I know each one of your, your children, your sons, and they are the most loving, kind-hearted kids who care about other people 
And I think that that is um, because they know what they've been through. And they just have this way about them, about caring about other people's emotions and just very loving and kind children. So I think we have all, we all have a lot to be very proud of. Well, we've talked about the outcomes for our kids. So let's just take a minute and think about how did the NICU transform us? Because I truly believe even through our worst experiences, we can find good. We can find things that make us better people. And sometimes that takes years um, for us to get to that other side. But uh, Scott, I'll start with you. I know that we would never want our children to be in the NICU. We would never put them through that again. But now as we look back as more sage parents and what we've learned and how we've grown, do you feel like that was a transformational experience for you? Do you feel like there were some good things that came out of this experience for you and for Catherine? I definitely think that the experience of going through a NICU was uh, incredibly, I I think, challenging uh, at first in in our life, but uh, also uh, a very transforming, transformational experience for us. Uh, I would say one of the things that, that I learned, and I think Maybe uh, men or, or dads uh, will experience this, but one of the things that, that I learned was when someone offers help, uh, your response is yes, uh, take the help. Uh, and I think so often, so many men just do not, do not accept that. They, uh, whatever it is, maybe you're, we're, we're macho, we're men, we don't, we don't do those things, we provide for our families. Um, I think this is something that's very important, and what I think transformed me and my own experience with Luke and the NICU was um, there are some incredibly kind, generous, and faithful people in this world. And uh, when this traumatic experience happens to you, they just show up. Uh, they you know you've really kind of hit friendship with someone when they uh, when they run to the local store and uh, buy your wife new underwear uh, because she uh, needs it and she's uh, dealing with that and you don't have the time to do it but you you know your friends are there when they go buy new underwear for you this was something that um, that we experienced I think and it, it probably changed us more than we've really imagined was being able to say yes to someone's offer to support you and someone's offer to help you, however that may be, with, with food, with money, with prayers, emotional support, whatever that may be. Uh, but to me, I think that's something that really kind of comes to mind, that uh, just being able to say yes to someone's offer, uh, that's a great gift to that person, to say yes to their offer to help you. I agree, Scott. Um, think about it the other way around. If your buddy is sitting in the, the NICU bedside and you're trying to help him you're trying to fix his problem you're trying to offer help Um, let that person help you even if it doesn't help you so much it helps them and you're going to need that support either that day or later so keep those people close and accept the help mike I wondered if you'd share, do you feel like you grew from that experience? Do you feel like you um, learned any life lessons that you now feel were valuable? 
Yes. One thing that I always go back to when I try to think about how did I come out of this better than I was before I went in. When Jackson was born, the doctors explained to me that he had a 50-50 chance to live. And if he lived, he had a 50-50 chance that something terribly wrong or many terribly wrong things would uh, he would be dealing with. So I lived hour by hour with him in the beginning, and then it was day by day, and then week by week. And I remember driving home and stumbling across a deep track on one of my rat albums called Live For Today, and I would listen to that song and just remind myself, live for today. Um, and my son was doing it. He was showing me how to live for the day. He was surviving every day and fighting every day. So if he could do it, then I could do it. And that got me to the next day. So when I think back, I try to think about those days where I was enjoying every day, even, even the bad days. Uh, just having a day where my son was alive in the NICU was a victory, even if he was struggling. So live for the day, I guess. Absolutely. I think uh, what Mike had mentioned is just learning from, <laughs> learning from your child. I just want to thank you all so much for giving your time to be a part of this podcast. I hope that we'll find that it is transformational for the dads that are listening, that it might provide them some hope and inspiration as they are walking in our footsteps now uh, through that hallway of that NICU and preparing to bring the baby home and just for them to know they are not alone and that other guys have gone through this and that uh, there is so much to look forward to when your baby graduates from the NICU. Well, as you know, listeners, I always end with uh, our quote of the day. And so um, I've asked Mike to share a scripture that uh, was really important to him and to our family through our NICU stay. So I'm going to allow him to read that now. Thank you. My sister sent me a little sailboat with a scripture on it, and uh, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And that's from Jeremiah 29.11. I had never heard that before, but when I saw that scripture, it hit home for me because I was trying to get through every single day and try to imagine what the future held for my son. And I had to give in to the fact that it was out of my control. And that God had a plan for him Mm -hmm. and for us. Gentlemen, thank you again for being here and being part of our podcast. I hope it will be a blessing to all the men, all the fathers, all the partners that are listening. Thank you. In order for NICU babies to thrive after discharge, they need smart, informed parents who understand their needs and are emotionally and physically capable of caring for a medically fragile child. Peer-to-peer support is an effective tool for helping parents navigate their NICU stay. Support from a caring and informed NICU graduate parent helps a new family feel more capable, confident, and ready to face the journey ahead. To request support, 
volunteer, or donate, please visit our website at handtohold.org.